This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. The coroner said the newsman's body had been floating out there in the waters of the Thermaic Gulf for about a week. A translation of the autopsy written in Greek reads, The corpse was clad with its clothes in complete order coat, a shirt, and pants. The corpse had also its shoes on it, unquote. The man's hands were bound with rope, his feet as well, and then there was the hole in the back of his head. Irregular, the coroner wrote, with edges like a precipice torn in the shape of a star. The bullet, clearly fired at point-blank range, went through the base of the skull and exited in front just between the nostrils. But the medical examiner said it was not a fatal shot. The quantity of liquid inhaled into the lungs, he wrote, cannot be justified in any other way except that the victim was thrown into the sea whilst still alive. Listen now to the ugly, angry noise of the Palestine controversy. This is George Polk reporting from Athens. A 34-year-old, tall, lean, blonde American, full of courage and an insatiable appetite for truth, for truth, for truth. You're listening to the story of a reporter who was murdered here in Greece 75 years ago. A young, daring CBS News correspondent whose name was then and is now synonymous with journalistic excellence. It's sadly also a story about a Cold War cover-up by officials in the U.S. government and complicity among members of the press, who were at the time content to see an innocent man rot in prison. I'm Stephen Portnoy, and for the first time in decades, CBS News has returned to the scene of the crime. Together with experts and authors, we've reopened the case to ask, who killed George Polk? This CBS News Radio special, Who Killed George Polk?, is presented with the support of the National Press Club and the Radio Television Digital News Association. Now again, from Greece, here is CBS News White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. It happened here in the city that used to be called Salonika in May of 1948. I'm standing about 50 miles from Mount Olympus, which on a clear day you can see from the coast. Today, the Greeks call this place Thessaloniki, 
and it's Greece's second biggest city next to Athens. I've come here to the heart of ancient Macedonia to tell you about what happened when this place was at the center of a proxy war between Washington and Moscow, a fight that pitted a right-wing government backed by the United States against communist guerrillas aligned with the Soviets. The subject of our story has been called the first casualty of the Cold War. There's a good chance you've heard his name before. Earned a George Polk Award. A George Polk Award. He has also won the George Polk Award. He's a two-time winner of the George Polk Award. Woodward and Bernstein, Christiana Manpour, Thomas Friedman, Walter Cronkite, just some of the hundreds of people who've won awards named after George Polk. The honor was created by friends and fellow journalists after his death as a lasting memorial to a truth-teller who reported the story as it was, not as the powerful would have preferred. By the time he got here, Polk was already battle-tested. A six-foot-tall, blonde Texan who attended VMI and flew for the Navy in World War II. George was tall, handsome, wonderful, loving, generous, kind. Now in her 80s, Marsha French still remembers her uncle coming home to Texas when she was a girl. Sometimes he was in a uniform, sometimes he was just in plain clothes. You know, he was just immediately drawn to doing fun things with me to make me laugh or make me happy or whatnot. And I mean, he was a very warm, loving person. Our reporter, whose full name was George Washington Polk, had been born to a prominent family that produced a president, James K. Polk of the 1840s. The family was wealthy. And then it all crashed, literally, with the Wall Street crash of 1929. The family lost its fortune. His parents got divorced. And thus began George Polk's odyssey. Conti Martin has written extensively about Polk and his murder. You know, he was the sort of man who, whose presence was immediately felt in, in any room he walked into because he, he kind of screamed American, cowboy, adventuresome, you know, fatally charming, fatally good-looking. One of his bosses once said he looked like Errol Flynn. For a more modern movie star comparison based on the pictures, I'd say he looked like Ryan Gosling. As a young man with wanderlust, Polk left Fort Worth and headed west, first to California, then Alaska, Shanghai, the Philippines, and Europe. Kati Martin. You know, you could you could psychoanalyze that and say that he was fleeing his his own lost heritage, but whatever it was a it was a good place from which to attack the world and to become what he became, which is one of the great foreign correspondents, especially once he caught the attention of the greatest of them all and his role model, Edward R. Murrow. This is Trafalgar Square. Through World War II, Ed Murrow's reports from London during the Blitz made him a legend. A searchlight just burst into action off in the distance. One single beam sweeping the sky above me now. George Polk had been a listener and a fan, and through the war, as he sent in dispatches for various U.S. newspapers from his posts abroad, Polk earned Murrow's respect as a reader. A year after the war ended, George Polk was hired by CBS to become the network's first Middle East correspondent. Sadly, not much of his work survives on tape. Here's a rare recording of him interviewing a teenager on the streets of Cairo. That's 60 cents a day that you make, and you pay for all your family. How many children do you have? I have three children. You have three children. How old are you? Me, I'm about 16 years old. You're 16 years old. You have three children. Yes, sir. Here's Polk covering the skirmishes between Arabs and Jews that would soon explode into war. Just below this CBS microphone here in Jerusalem, that's a heavy burst of machine gun fire. We have two microphones. One is in my hand. The other is dangling out of the window to bring to you 
The Sons of Palestine. That's a Tommy gun. That's a heavy rifle. That's a getaway car. It's swinging around to make a run for it. As hot as the war for Israeli independence would be, another matter would soon draw Polk's attention. In Washington, the gravest international crisis since the war flares into the open. President Truman drives to the Capitol to report to an extraordinary session of both houses of Congress on the growing problems in Greece and Turkey. In March of 1947, as the map of the world was being redrawn, Greece was at the center of the power struggle that pitted East versus West. Greece, ancient cradle of democracy, last Western outpost in the Balkans, is today bare of resources. And as the Iron Curtain of Soviet domination descended upon Eastern Europe, Greece was embroiled in a civil war. Communist guerrillas based in the mountains of northern Greece clashed with the right-wing royalist government that had been propped up by the British. Winston Churchill saw Greece and Turkey as last stands for the West. If those two countries were to fall into the Soviet sphere, he reasoned, the contagion could spread further south. The whole Middle East, it is claimed, might face communist expansion. But by the winter of 47, under the prime minister who succeeded Churchill, the Brits decided they'd had enough of being civil war mediators in Greece. They were pulling out, and that's why Harry Truman went to Congress. Greece must have assistance if it is to become a self-supporting and self-respecting democracy. In words that would shape the American policy of containment for decades and become known as the Truman Doctrine, the president vowed the U.S. would support free countries in their efforts to resist communist aggression. We must take immediate and resolute action. Truman asked lawmakers to approve $400 million in aid, about $5.5 billion today. Grave issues of international leadership rest upon the Congress. An historic change in U.S. foreign policy toward the maintenance of peace and order may well shape the future destiny of all the peoples of the world. That's why George Polk went to Greece. He didn't like what he saw. Here in Athens, the long-discussed Greek problem finally is being recognized for what it is, a Greek crisis. Polk's accountability journalism and his efforts to get Americans the whole story angered officials in Washington and Athens. That was akin to treachery, to treason. That's next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. Here again, White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. I'm rather embarrassed to say, even as a 20-year veteran of network news, that until about six months ago, I wasn't fully aware of this story. It wasn't until late last year when a fellow broadcast history buff said to me, you ought to look up what happened to George Polk. He was really onto something. This story may be 75 years old, but its modern relevance is clear. There are parallels between Polk's story and those of Evan Gershkovich, Jamal Khashoggi, and other reporters who've been targeted for the work they've done for readers, viewers, and listeners. You ought to know this marks just the third time that CBS News has told this story. Once around when it happened in the late 1940s, again in 1990 for 60 Minutes, and now this program today. But never before have we dug as deep or reported the story as thoroughly as we will in these hours. Now like me, George Polk was a radio reporter. He was just 34 years old, eight years younger than I am now. But he'd already had a whole life's worth of experiences under his belt. George had traveled the world as a newspaper reporter through the late 1930s. He was on Guadalcanal with the Navy during World War II. And there he'd suffered physical and emotional scars that he would carry for his few remaining years. 
In the spring of 1948, our late CBS News colleague was in Greece to cover one of the first major fronts of the Cold War. The U.S.-backed Greek government was battling communist guerrillas, and Congress had just approved hundreds of millions of dollars in aid to prop up the Greek authorities. In order to understand what happened to George Polk, you have to see the kind of setting, the climate in Greece. Johnny Atreides grew up there. Now aged 90, he's a retired professor of international politics at Southern Connecticut State University. He remembers how unforgiving the right-wing Greek government was. I don't think to call it a police state, which is an ugly term, I don't think it's an exaggeration. So you have a kind of a terror regime. A cabal of elites had ultimate power, and they wouldn't stand for criticism. From the start of his time in Athens, our reporter George Polk found himself put off by the government's tactics. He wrote home to Texas in a letter we've reenacted. It's fascist and below the belt in every way. It appears we're going to pour money down Athens' hole for government rats to get at. The congressional appropriation for Greece and Turkey in 1947 was $400 million, about $5.5 billion today. Polk felt it was important for the American public to know what it was getting for its money. He had reason to suspect the authorities were hoarding it instead of using it to help the people of Greece. Here is a surviving recording of one of Polk's broadcasts along these lines. Here in Athens, the long-discussed Greek problem finally is being recognized for what it is, a Greek crisis. By then, George was living in Athens. He'd married a young Greek woman named Rhea, and the couple shared an apartment with her father. In an attempt to go further in-depth in print than he ever could on the air, George Polk wrote a piece for the influential monthly Harper's Magazine in December 1947. It ran under the headline, Greece puts us to the test. Anyone daring to criticize government policies is likely to be labeled communist and given a one-way ticket to a barren Aegean island. Obviously, such an officially rigged system must be rotten to the core. Polk's article specifically called out Greece's foreign minister, Konstantin Saldaris, as one of those rigging the system. Polk described Saldaris as a henchman. Within days, Frank Stanton, the president of CBS, received an embossed letter from the Greek embassy in Washington. The ambassador called Polk's article a grossly exaggerated report and a complete distortion of the truth. The head of the network took an ambassador's formal protest about one of his reporters seriously. So Frank Stanton sent it to the news division for review. Ed Murrow sent the reply, which we've asked our chief Washington correspondent, Major Garrett, to read. For the past several months, I have watched Polk's stuff very carefully. I have come to regard him as one of the most careful, able correspondents in the whole CBS organization. Author Kati Martin chronicled these developments in her book. CBS was courageous in backing him, and not only backing him, but giving him more and more airtime. From CBS's standpoint, Murrow's endorsement was the final word. But Polk's article in Harper's, and what he was saying on the air, rankled the State Department. Documents prove it. A confidential memo that Kati Martin uncovered has the top U.S. embassy official in Athens, warning then-Secretary of State George Marshall, of the biased, fragmentary, and hostile reporting of certain American correspondents. Such reporting, the official warned, was prejudicial to American interests in Greece. A month after Polk said in print that the Greek government was rotten to the core, he said this in a broadcast report from Athens, which we've recreated from the official transcript because a recording no longer exists. Things here have not improved. In fact, they have greatly worsened. Out of this confusion, only the Greek communists have benefited. They look ahead. Polk was looking ahead, too. 
By the spring of 48, he'd planned to take a whole year off and write a book about his reporting across the Middle East. He'd also been nominated for a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, which to this day is a huge honor for journalists. 34-year-old George and his young wife, Rhea, were planning to head stateside. To stay true to the story he was covering, he continued to infuse his on-air work with sharp criticism of the Greek authorities. The Greek military high command appears almost as bad as the Greek government. Both are shot through with favoritism, inefficiency, and corruption. Officials in Athens were listening. Again, Kati Martin. George kind of was oblivious to the fact that he was identified by the Greek right wing as an enemy of the Greek power structure. That spring, threats started coming into Polk's Athens apartment. Rhea Polk remembered in a 1990 interview for 60 Minutes. There were anonymous phone calls calling him a communist and to get out of Greece or we're going to kill you. Before heading back to New York and then that Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, Polk wanted to bring home a big story. He wanted the honor of sitting in studio with Edward R. Murrow and telling of all he'd experienced in Greece. He wanted Americans to hear the other side of the Civil War story, and he wanted to be the first to tell it. He wrote Murrow a letter, which Murrow later read on the air. Since 1946, I've not had a contact with the Greek Communist Party that I believed was a real contact. Lots of persons have presented themselves to me claiming to speak authoritatively, but I think they were all phonies. So, with a contact, through a contact, I'd like to get in touch with the persons who count. Polk specifically said he wanted to meet with General Marcos Vafiades, the reclusive leader of the communists, that he'd go blindfolded if he had to, to get the exclusive. That letter to Murrow and another to his mother were the last he'd ever write. George Polk wasn't supposed to land here in Salonika. The plan was for him, his wife, and another couple to take a few down days in the northern coastal town of Kavala and bask in the Greek sun before heading to the States. But given the state of the war, Polk's friends became too scared to travel. Rhea Polk was too. Four decades later, she told 60 Minutes. I had a terrible premonition. I said to my maid, I, uh, I should go with him. I can't protect him always. But I'm afraid for this trip. I really am afraid. George's flight to Kavala, about 200 miles from Athens, was diverted due to weather. And that's how Polk wound up here in Salonika, where he'd live his last two days. It wasn't George's first time in Salonika. It was on a flight here that he'd met his young wife. But by happenstance, his presence here, just days before he was to head back to New York, would give him one last chance to get close to the guerrillas' positions in the mountains. There's no complete accounting of what George Polk did his last two days here. It is known that he visited the American consulate, that he attended a conference of UN officials about the communists abducting Greek children to send them for re-education behind the Iron Curtain. We know he spent some time socializing with American reporters who'd gathered here for that UN event. There was also a meeting with a British press attaché, Randall Coate, whose job was to interact with reporters on behalf of His Majesty's government. Polk asked all of them and others for help connecting with the communists in the mountains. What happened next? Well, that's the mystery. George Polk had his last meal with someone on Saturday, May 8, 1948. In room 25 of the Astoria Hotel, Polk's last letter to Edmurrow was left next to his portable typewriter. Another letter half completed was addressed to his mother in Texas. On Wednesday, four days after George was last seen, the 3rd District Police Station here received a manila envelope. 
It was delivered by the postman despite not having a stamp or a return address. Inside, a photo ID card issued by the U.S. War Department to George W. Polk, civilian war correspondent. The mailing of Polk's ID card to police that Wednesday, along with concerns voiced by fellow journalists who had hoped to see him two days earlier, led authorities to begin a formal search. Word of Polk's disappearance soon became news that reached Washington. A boatman's discovery ended the search the following Sunday. The body of George Polk, Middle Eastern correspondent for the Columbia Broadcasting System, was found floating in the Bay of Salonico, Greece, on the morning of May 16th. Who killed George Polk? Almost everyone had an immediate suspicion. This was a very conspiratorial political assassination. You can't say those things in a civil war. The Greek police are up against the blank wall. Fellow journalists lead their own search for a suspect. Next. The CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, continues. Here again, White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. It's after midnight here in Thessaloniki. I'm looking out at the bay, standing next to the medieval prison fortress that's a symbol of the city. The brick exterior of the White Tower is lit up in the night. Container ships are docked in the distance. The water of the bay is eerily still. I can't help but wonder how closely this scene resembles that Saturday night 75 years ago, the night our reporter disappeared. At 8 a.m. local time, Sunday, May 16, 1948, a boatman in Salonika Harbor saw the body of a man floating a few inches below the surface of the water. And on CBS radio, Don Hollenbeck described what Greek investigators were able to quickly discern. Examination showed that the correspondent had been shot in the back of the head. His hands and feet were bound with 30 feet of rope, apparently after he had been shot, since there were no signs of a struggle. Back at home, George Polk's death was front-page news. Edward R. Murrow eulogized him on the air. George Polk had that honesty and integrity, the reverence for fact and indifference to criticism, which gave him the respect of the men in his trade. And now that he is dead, the question is not whether he might have had cause to fear violence from the Greek government or the communists. The question is, who killed him? In the months before his murder on the CBS network, George Polk had been an outspoken critic of Greece's right-wing authorities and the U.S. aid mission that Congress established to prop up the Greek government. The mission has had the objective of preventing the spread of communism by helping the Greek people to help themselves. But few persons here think the mission has had much success. Polk's last letter to Edward R. Murrow, which was found in his hotel room, has him expressing his wish to get both sides of the Civil War story. Polk specifically said he hoped to arrange a meeting with General Marcos, the communist guerrilla leader in the nearby mountains. Kati Martin wrote the book, The Polk Conspiracy. For those Greeks who were supporting the right wing, that was akin to treachery, to treason. Anybody who went to speak to the communists in their mountain hideaway, as, as one of my sources said, well, that's what we carried guns for. The day Polk's body was discovered, Greek authorities held a news conference. They asserted unequivocally and right away that communists had committed the crime. The top prosecutor in Salonika said he was 1,000% sure that the communists had done it. Polk's fellow journalists were incredulous and extremely angry. All reporters everywhere are vitally concerned in finding the answer to the death of George Polk. 
Howard K. Smith was the London bureau chief of CBS News. The murder of a good reporter is more than the death of one man. It is the murder of truth, and the truth is having enough trouble surviving these days. For Polk's family in Texas, which had been torn by divorce and the Depression, the loss was deeply felt. Marcia French was seven when her uncle George died. I remember the house just went dark, and my grandmother got lay on a sofa in the living room and just couldn't even talk. And I remember, well, it makes me cry to even think of it, but I would go in and just lie on her chest and tummy and try to comfort her because it, she was so devastated. To investigate the murder of one of their own, CBS News sent correspondent Winston Burdett to Salonica. I think there's no question that George walked into a trap. He believed that he was going to meet the guerrillas on the other side of the water. Now, he was either in their hands, they in bad faith, or he was in the hands of imposters. And this was the great ambiguity of the crime in the early days of the investigation. For the Greek right, backed by hundreds of millions of dollars in U.S. support, there could be no ambiguity. Retired professor John E. Atreides recalls reading one editorial in a right-wing newspaper. I'm obviously paraphrasing. God let it be the communists that killed him. Because if it is the state, it's the end of us. Why would the United States support a government whose supporters kill American journalists? By the time of his death, Polk had achieved a great deal of renown. He was due to receive a Neiman Fellowship for top journalists at Harvard. Prior to joining CBS, he wrote for daily papers in New York, Los Angeles, and D.C. He made lots of friends in the industry. And among them was the noted and highly influential columnist Walter Lippmann. They used to say about Walter Lippmann, he was as much a um, creator of U.S. foreign policy as the Secretary of State. Historian Elias Vlanton notes Polk befriended Lippmann during the brief time that he reported from Washington, just as World War II was ending. When Polk died, Lippmann formed a committee to get to the bottom of it. And to lead the probe, the reporters hired no one less than the father of the CIA, General Wild Bill Donovan. Donovan sold out the newsmen and sold out the truth and sold out ultimately this brave reporter, George Polk. That's next. This CBS News Radio special, Who Killed George Polk, can be found in its entirety online at cbsnews.com slash polk. Now again, here's White House correspondent Stephen Portnoy. From my post here in Washington, I've been spending the past several months digging through official documents to learn what the U.S. government has had on file about our late colleague, a Navy veteran of World War II, who was murdered in Greece in 1948. Boxes of material on George Polk's case, mainly from the State Department, are available for review at the National Archives. I flipped through page after page of onion-skinned, carbon-copied memos and yellowed newspaper clippings. For decades, much of this material was classified. A great deal of credit is due to the authors you're hearing from in this program for pushing for those government secrets to be made available to the public. The documents reveal that U.S. officials sought to get in the way of the truth to protect what they believed to be in America's national interests as the Cold War was just getting underway. The murder of CBS News correspondent George Polk happened a year before NATO was founded, at a time that the U.S. had pumped hundreds of millions of dollars into Greece to prevent it from falling to communist guerrillas. 
retired professor Johnny Atreides. Obviously for the United States, for the Truman administration, it, this is a major setback that you have a prominent journalist killed in Greece that they're supporting. When Polk's body was found floating in Salonika Bay, authorities quickly seized on the final letter Polk had written to Edward R. Murrow, which he'd left in his hotel room. Polk said it was his intention to head to the mountains to try to interview General Marcos, the commander of the communist guerrillas. They give a press conference. The first thing they say is he was undoubtedly killed by the communists. Historian Elias Vlantin, who first dug into government documents about the Polk case in 1976, uncovered State Department cables showing just how anxious U.S. officials were in the aftermath of the murder to get it solved quickly. Here in Washington, George Polk's fellow journalists were similarly agitating for answers. Suspicion here was high that the right-wing government of Greece was behind it. After all, Polk had been critical of that government. In print, months before his mysterious death, he had called powerful Greek officials henchmen. He was a bit more restrained on the air. Observers here believe that only drastic changes really can right Greece's wrongs. Within a week after Polk's body was discovered, the preeminent columnist Walter Lippmann, who had befriended Polk during his brief stint in D.C., organized an effort. The Overseas Writers Committee raised funds from network executives and top publishers. And with that money, the group hired an investigator to go to Greece to keep tabs on the search for a murderer. That's how General William Wild Bill Donovan entered the picture. Walter Lippmann and Donovan were friends. That's Randy Burkett, a staff historian at the CIA. You see, Wild Bill Donovan was a very important figure here in D.C. in the middle of the 20th century, and he was essential to the founding of America's leading spy agency. Donovan was the father of the Office of Strategic Services, the wartime intelligence outfit that would morph into the CIA. You could imagine how challenging it was for Lippmann and the Overseas Writers Committee of Inquiry to find someone who can go into Greece in the midst of a civil war and have the kind of personal gravitas to be able to be received, to be granted access to an ongoing investigation that's very charged politically. Donovan had that kind of reputation. Bill Donovan was a larger-than-life figure who earned his Wild Bill nickname, either in the Army, chasing Mexican revolutionary Pancho Villa back across the border just before World War I, or at Columbia, where he was the quarterback of the football team. Either way, the nickname was widely known and stuck. Donovan, of course, is not going to go investigating himself. He's going to get who he considers a uh, top OSS expert on Greece. Elias Vlantin notes that Donovan didn't speak a word of Greek, but he did know of a man who worked within the OSS to help Greek resistance fighters in their sabotage operations against the Nazis. That man was Air Force Colonel James Kellis, and he is pivotal to our story. In 1948, Kellis was still on active duty. Donovan, having the privilege and status to do so, requested that the Defense Department detail Kellis from the Air Force to assist him in his private inquiry into the Polk case. The request was granted, and the pair flew overseas to dig in. Now, Elias Vlantin notes a number of Americans were granted early access to the Greek investigation. CBS News correspondent Winston Burdett was among them, along with officials of the U.S. consulate in Salonika. But the way the Greek investigators dealt with them was one thing. Blanton says Colonel Kellis had their number. And the chief of police, Muskundi, says, watch what you say, he speaks Greek. So that shows you the assumption was these dummy Americans 
you say whatever you want in front of them because they don't know what anything you're saying. But this guy is different because he can actually speak the language. Kellis also had contacts across Greece, having aided those sabotage missions for the OSS. He knew Greeks who would go on to fight for the right-wing government, as well as Greeks who would go on to fight for the communists. So when the Greek authorities he met with said that the communists were planning to sabotage the Polk investigation, Elias Vlanton says Kellis went right to his sources in Signal's intelligence. And he said, did you de- de- decrypt this telegram? And they said, no, we've never seen it before. So then he knew they were trying to pull the wool over his eyes. Kellis wasn't in Greece for very long, just a month and a half. But over that time, he learned more about the case than Greek investigators had turned up. It wasn't long before officials in the U.S. consulate in Salonika started getting nervous about Kellis. They would write a report to Washington that said they're looking at it and everything was fine. Now, all of a sudden, you have Kellis coming who said, oh, no, 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 uh, everything is going on, everything you're believing isn't probably true. And so the easiest thing for them was to get rid of Kellis. Kati Martin. The tragic part is that all these people at the U.S. Embassy in Athens were more interested in thwarting the investigation than in advancing it. The State Department files at the National Archives include a telegram sent by the U.S. Consul General in Salonika to the Embassy in Athens on August 12, 1948. It reads, My personal opinion is that Colonel Kellis has lost the confidence of Greek authorities, that he is not objective, and his return would be prejudicial to the investigation. The message ends by recommending that the State Department tell the Pentagon not to allow Kellis to return. And General Donovan didn't fight to keep him on the case. Colonel Kellis would never get over what happened to him in the summer of 1948. Kellis was a bitter man as as a result. In her book, The Polk Conspiracy, Kati Martin reports that Kellis continued to air his frustration about the case in documents we have given voice to here, such as this partially redacted CIA memo from December 1952. During my entire stay in Greece, 45 days, I encountered direct and indirect sabotage by certain members of the American embassy. The top embassy official once asked me, why are you killing yourself over the Polk case? If you or I were killed, nobody would care. Here's what Kellis wrote in 1956 to Walter Lippmann, the noted columnist who hired General Donovan to monitor the Greek probe. I can tell you now that I was under considerable pressure to get out of the investigation and shut up. And in 1977, nearly three decades after Polk's murder, Kellis took his frustrations over the case public in a New York Times op-ed. My experience with the Polk investigation left me with an uneasy feeling that many United States officials were willing to disregard principles for personal or national convenience. Kati Martin calls Colonel James Kellis one of the heroes of the Polk case. Before he left Greece, Kellis had pieced together enough about Polk's last two days in Salonika to come up with a list of plausible suspects. What would happen next would be a crime in its own right. General Donovan reviewed very carefully all of the 10 suspects that I had submitted to him in my confidential report. He asked the Greek chief investigator to concentrate on one. That's next. The search for George Polk's murderer dragged on for weeks with no leads. 
More than a month after the reporter's body was found, Edward R. Murrow reported on the CBS radio network. The Salonica police say that in the Polk case, they have had 300 investigators working, questioning waiters, hotel people, barmen, taxi drivers, anyone who might have seen the correspondent during the 48 hours between the time he arrived at Salonica Airport and the hour he is thought to have been killed. The only tangible clues were these. Polk's ID card issued by the U.S. War Department had been mailed to a police station in a manila envelope. His hands and feet were bound. Investigators initially said they believed Polk was tied up after he was shot because there was no sign of a struggle. The coroner also determined Polk had eaten a last meal. Lobster was the main dish. Johnny Atreides, who is now 90, grew up in Salonika and was a teenager at the time of the murder. They were trying to find the police in this exhaustive search, looking through every garbage can, lobster shells, and they cannot find them. In early August, Murrow returned to the air to report... The Greek police are up against a blank wall. Elias Vlantin has written a history of the case. I think the Greek officials expected, we'll just, you know, we'll, we'll wait the Americans out, but we won't actually nab anybody. It was about this time that General Wild Bill Donovan, the father of American intelligence, appointed by a committee of news organizations to oversee the investigation, held a pivotal meeting with authorities in Salonika. He said, you know, we're giving a lot of money here and the American people are not just going to accept, we're looking at it. Vlanton points to a key phrase from Donovan in a memorandum about the meeting, which he found in the State Department files. An arrest is desired, is how the memo puts it. I think it's stuck with the Greek police that there is no choice, an arrest is desired and an arrest must be supplied. Over that summer of 1948, General Donovan had an investigator with him in Greece, a Greek-American Air Force colonel and American spy in World War II who spent weeks digging into the Polk case. Before he was sent home at the behest of embassy officials and Greek police, Colonel Jim Kellis drafted a list of possible suspects. As Kellis later described it in a secret CIA memo, General Donovan reviewed very carefully all of the 10 suspects that I had submitted to him in my confidential report. He asked the Greek chief investigator to concentrate on one, a Greek newspaper man. As our report continues, General Donovan's identification of a suspect leads to a grave injustice. I didn't have the power to deny anything. Who Killed George Polk, a CBS News special, has been written and produced by me, Stephen Portnoy, and Paul Woodhull. Additional production by Jamie Benson. Craig Swagler is our executive producer. Special thanks to Rich Lamb, David Plotkin, and the CBS News Archives. And from 60 Minutes, Claudia Weinstein, Rebecca Chertok-Gonsalves, Chris Layden, Gene Solomon Langley, and the late Ed Bradley. This CBS News special, Who Killed George Polk, is sponsored by the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists dedicated to press freedom and media literacy around the globe.
Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.